Job 19, we're going to read, uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read verses uh, 23 through 27, as I'm going to reference verse 23 and 24 in a little bit. Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Let's pray. Our Father, Job in the midst of all of his suffering, lifted his eyes and was given a vision of the resurrection of you, Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. We look back upon that event, but we look forward to the day when we will see you. Will you please bless our worship and bless us as we consider this passage together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one more quick comment just about our technical team. I don't know how in the world they got a PowerPoint together <laughs> and uh, had everything ready for, for live stream and uh, with that change. They just did a, a remarkable job. Thank you all for serving this congregation so well. G.K. Chesterton, uh, in his book Heretics, has this to say. He says, as long as matters are really hopeful, hope is a mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. Like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. Chesterton just has a way of looking at things different, right? And, and, and I think that's his brilliance. And then he's able to articulate that, that difference and is able to see things and to remind us that, that hope is, is, is only powerful in our life when the circumstances around us seem hopeless. Think about what it was like on that first uh, Easter It's easy for us to simply say, Jesus died. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's true. But to recognize that, that these uh, disciples had committed three years of their life, all of the time, to following Jesus, to being with Him, to learning from Him. They had gained such a great vision. They had seen the power of this man. They had watched Him turn the water into wine. They had seen Him uh, touch the, the, the coffin and the boy in, in uh, Nain comes to life. They were there and heard the words, Lazarus, come forth. They heard the teachings that destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it again, but they didn't quite understand. And this one is now gone. He's dead. They were there when he was arrested. It's possible that they, they wrestled with guilt. Could I have done something? Was Peter right to have taken a sword? What if we'd all been armed? What if we had gone with him, but instead they'd scattered? All of these are thoughts that were going on in their minds. Their hopes have been dashed. And the woman has gone off, the women have gone off to visit his body, expecting his body, only to find that Jesus has risen again. 
Job, the context in which the verses we're looking at today, was also in what would appear to be a hopeless situation in his life. If you remember, he'd lost all of his children and all of his wealth had been destroyed by Satan. Even the world around us talks about the suffering of Job and they recognize, or the patience of Job, they recognize what he went through. And then as though that's not enough, he gets this horrible disease in which he's got boils all over his body and he's having to scratch it with, with uh, parts of uh, uh, potsherd to try, to try to somehow give himself some relief. He's sitting in, in, in uh, ashes. He's mourning. And then his wife has given up all hope and she says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And then his friends show up, and their only comfort to him is, Job, you need to fess up. Clearly, you did something wrong. And that's the, that's the position he's in when he pens these words. He's lost all hope except hope in Jesus Christ. Though he did not know his name, yet that's where his hope resided. In this passage, we look in verses 23 and 24 and we see something. He says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. He says, I want this written down. I want this remembered. This is my words. This is, this is my testimony. This is what I have to say to the world in the midst of the suffering that I'm going through. And what is it that he wanted written down? What are the words that he wanted engraved with an iron stylus and with lead? As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. That was his bedrock hope. That's what he he, he staked everything on. Was the resurrection of Jesus. In the midst of the hopeless situation that he was in, he found hope in the resurrection of Jesus of Jesus, and it sustained him. How can we hope in Jesus' resurrection? I think he gives us uh, two ways. The first is that to hope in Jesus' resurrection, we have to look to Jesus. It's interesting, as I uh, wrote this down, I I reference uh, an event, but also uh, the movie Apollo 13, and then I got home last night, and it was on TV. It's like, ooh, I get to watch this again. Um, you remember the scene in, in, in the movie, in particular, it's portrayed, I don't know, you know what parts are exactly accurate and which are added for dramatic effect, but there came this point where the computers are down, but they need to do, I think it was a, a 39-second burn, they, they, because they needed to adjust the trajectory because the weight was different than they anticipated it to be, and so they had to make this change. And so they had to do this, this burn, but they didn't have the computers to guide uh, the, the ship. So what are they going to do? They said, well, and the, I think it was Jim Lovell said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look out my window and I'm going to focus on the earth and I'm going to keep it in that spot all the time. And so he focused on the earth as they did the burn in order to be sure that they remained on track and they went where they needed to go. Where do you look in hard times? I think it's a, a good question for us. I know myself, when, when things are hard, the first place I look is for solutions, which means I'm looking right here, right? <laughs> I figure I'm where I'm going to look. And, and that self-dependence sometimes is a helpful thing, but sometimes it's an idolatrous thing. And I begin to look, look to myself. Sometimes we may look to friends. What's everybody else doing? 
What do my friends think? What are my friends doing? Can they help me out in this situation? I might look into uh, those. I might just focus on the circumstances. And sometimes we just look at the circumstances and we just throw up our hands and say, I don't don't know, there's just no hope. And we're left in hopelessness. We need to look to Jesus. Verses 26 and 27. I want you to notice as I read through this how many times he says, See, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh... I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. Three different times, Job mentions seeing, and specifically seeing his God, looking to God as the one who will bring uh, salvation and hope. We need to look to Jesus, and as we look to him, we're going to see that he is accessible. That's the first thing that we notice. Look at the relationship as as he talks about this. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. He's constantly reflecting upon himself and God and what that relationship is. He's aware that God is there. He's aware that God is, is high above all. He's aware that God is the Lord and King. And he's also aware that God is accessible. That He's near. That He's not just out there, away, and distant from Him. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, my Redeemer... Oh, the relationship. I want to I add this concept. And it's that relationship that it's my Redeemer that He recognizes grants Him access. We might sometimes say, it's not what you know, but who you know. What are we saying by that? Except relationship grants access. Robin's uh, best friend uh, growing up uh, married a guitar player in uh, Colorado, Dave Beagle. And uh, Dave is uh, really well-known in, in Colorado, and he happens to have a, a, a good friend named Phil Kagey. Have, have you heard of Phil? Um, from that, it provided us an opportunity. Dave one time asked Patrick to come and kind of be uh, an assistant roadie for a couple concerts that he was doing with Phil. And so because we knew Dave, we got to meet Phil Kagey, and it was really cool. It granted us access even to the, the backstage as things were going on, and it was really cool because of who we knew. Kind of like, like because we know Jesus, we have access with the Father because it's of who we know. Because he knew that it is my Redeemer, he knew he had access to God the Father. And he says, my Redeemer lives. Isn't that the central claim of Christianity? There were a couple things that, that witnessed to me when I was not a Christian. Uh, one of them was, was Robin's faithful witness. Um, another was her father. And a third was Christian music. Um, listening to music like Don Francisco, He's Alive, is one of the gospel witnesses. Um, and I think I've been to more Don Francisco concerts than any other Christian artist, except Patrick. Um, uh, uh, but, but having seen a number of those concerts and, and hearing that message, he's alive, he's alive. That is the heart 
of the Christian message. My Redeemer lives. And central to that is, is a, a personal relationship with God. That it's not just a matter of acknowledging and agreeing with certain propositions. But it's a recognition that there is a true and the living God. And that true and the living God has entered into my world. And as a person has interacted with me. And loves me. And hears me when I pray. And is interested and works on my behalf in the world that he has created. That he is accessible. And with that. I want to seek Him every day, don't you? My Redeemer lives, which means I can seek Him. But not only do we see, as we look to Jesus, that He's accessible, we also see that He also accepts us. He accepts you. Do you ever feel inadequate? Unacceptable? You just don't quite cut it? Do you ever have that feeling even when you think of God? Sometimes it causes us to maybe give up hope. It's like, well, how could I ever? I remember a, a, a woman who was a, a new believer was coming to our church and we had her over to our home and as we were talking with her and she said, well, I'm not like the other people in, in the church. I have a glass of wine every now and then. I didn't have the heart to tell her. I think I'm the only one who's a teetotaler in the entire church. But anyway, that was uh, uh, for, for another conversation. But, but that was just, for her, that was her sense. And that, that's just where it landed of, of her sense of, of unworthiness, of inadequacy, and having to help her understand that so many things uh, revolving around that. But helping her to understand, where does our, our acceptability come from? It comes from the fact that all of our sins have been taken away by Jesus, that He paid the price for them. And all of His righteous deeds have been credited to our account. That's where it is. And so I'm accepted by God. And the other side is, do you know He's done such a remarkable work in you? Why would you even care whether or not you're acceptable? Those who aren't His don't care. But you do. Because you recognize how great He is. And that's an indication that He's at work in your life, right? That He's put this inside you. You are acceptable to Him. He says this in verse 27. Whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see and not another. Isn't that an odd statement? And it, 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 it has some ambiguity, which is, which is typical of the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language is one that's, that's kind of shadowy and, and not super clear. Greek is much more, more uh, clear and purposeful. Hebrew is much more feeling-oriented. Um, but, but what he's saying, and, and I want to just suggest that you read it in, a, in another way for just a moment. Whom my eyes will see and none other than God. Whom my eyes will see and not another. In other words, I'm going to see him and not someone else. And I think that's a bit of the, the idea. But the word not another in Hebrew, actually a really good translation of that is, and not a stranger. That my eyes are going to see him. I'm going to see him himself. And you know what? He won't be a stranger. Think of that. He's going to be one who knows me. He's going to be one who 
wants my presence. As we think about standing before God, we can be concerned that we may one day stand before an adversary. But Job says no. We may be afraid we may stand before him. And he says what Jesus uh, mentioned in, in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you. To them he was a stranger. But to us, he's not a stranger. Jesus stands near. Think of his words that he promises in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 8. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. That's not the words of a stranger. Those those are not the words of an adversary. Those are the words of your Savior, of your Redeemer, the One who's paid the price for your sins. Hope comes when we look to Jesus and find that He's accessible and He accepts you. And hope also comes when we surrender to Jesus. Uh, Some of you know that I'm becoming more and more a a lover of of history, uh, reading a a lot of biographies and uh, a lot of the histories, and and recently I've read a few uh, histories, uh, the biography of uh, Robert E. Lee and uh, the uh, history of the uh, end of the Civil War and and looking at that, and I was thinking about uh, the terms of surrender that Grant offered to Lee at Appomattox. And to think about those terms, I mean, very easily that Grant could have said, there are no terms, it's unconditional. But that isn't what he did. He said, first off, here are the terms. You, you, you and your officers need to cease fighting. That seems like a given, right? Uh, but, but, it, but it was actually written down. You, you need to, to not do that. Um, the second term was that you need to surrender your weapons, except your sidearms and horses. They could keep their handguns and their horses. And that was something that that Lee asked for and uh, Grant was willing to give, which was very uncommon. But he knew that they would have a long trek home and it could be dangerous, so they would need some way to protect themselves. And they also knew that once they got home, they had to have horses in order to plow the fields and put in a crop in order to have something to eat. And so in his kindness, he said, you can keep your sidearms and your horses. And the third is, you need to obey the laws. Right? And he says, minor stuff. If you'll do that, then you will not be prosecuted and you will be undisturbed. Those were the terms that were given to General Lee that he accepted and uh, they signed at Appomattox on that day in, in April of 1865. As I think about that, I begin to think about what are the terms that I would suggest to God for me to surrender to Him? Right? Well, I'm going to surrender. You know, Lee got a pretty good deal. You know, what, 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 what are the terms that, that, that I might offer to God? Things like, um, you know, Lord, I'll surrender and 
And I'll only worry when I think it's really, really necessary. How about that? I'll surrender, Lord, and, and, I'll, and I'll be honest as long as I think that it, it doesn't harm me to be so. Right? I'm going to surrender, and because, by surrendering, I'm going to pray when I've got a really big need. I'm going to come to you, Lord. That's, that's kind of my terms. Does that sound like good terms? Does it sound like sometimes our Christianity and the reality of, of what we do? In other words, full surrender isn't something necessarily that, 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 that we do. As a matter of fact, we live in an age in which full surrender isn't necessarily uh, ordinary in the preaching of the pulpits of the church today. Uh, often we offer terms like that, which would be about like Lee saying, well, we'll surrender as long as we can keep fighting the war. Needless to say, I don't think Grant would have accepted those terms. What do you think? And would God? See, I'm going to surrender to Jesus because I learned that he rules. Look at uh, verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Take his stand is really saying that he will stand with authority. He's saying that he's going to stand up and he's going to be the one who's in absolute authority. As a matter of fact, here it's, it's pre-visioning Jesus' words in Matthew 28:18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Saying, it's already been given to me, I am now ruling supreme, I am the Lord on this planet. Job is aware of that, and he bows to that authority, recognizing that he rules. But as we look at the fact that he rules, just because someone rules doesn't mean it's necessarily a good thing, right? I mean, we see that uh, all over the world, we see these, these wicked rulers who oppress their people. We hear the stories about Zimbabwe and, and the, the, uh, the, the rise of inflation that's just going through the roof. And there was a time in which they had billion dollar bills that couldn't buy a, a loaf of bread uh, because the inflation has gone so high. And yet at the same time, the government officials are ordering in multiple Rolls Royces to be able to drive around the potholes of Zimbabwe. And so we see that a, that a, a ruler may indeed be, be wicked and, and oppress the people. But when we understand that Jesus rules, we understand that He is good. That He is Himself that which is good. And He rules as a good ruler. And we recognize that He also is a ruler who is on your side. To understand that reality. That He is my Redeemer is the one who will rule. That one who is on my side. Which means He will vindicate me when I am wrong. I remember a a survivor of abuse one time telling me that uh, after going through the abuse and seeing the difficulty of of the church and some of the failings of the church, that they they were tempted to kind of throw God away. But one of the things that allowed them to keep trusting in God was the recognition that because they believed in a God who was good and was just, they could understand that in one way or another there would be justice toward their oppressor. And that recognition and that knowledge for us as the people of God, that there is hope. We are wronged in this world, are we not? People do sin against us in this world. And one day, one day we will be vindicated. Jesus Christ will bring about justice, either by the justice upon the oppressor or by Jesus having faced it Himself. But either way, there's hope. 
because He's on our side. But the other side of that is we also wrong people, don't we? It'd be nice if we never hurt people, but we do. And that probably shames us more than anything else. But because the one with authority, the one who rules is on our side, we recognize that He will forgive us. He will forgive us because Jesus has indeed paid that price upon the cross. So He rules, and therefore we can abandon everything. Look at at how He ends verse 27. My heart faints within me. My heart faints. What does that convey? To faint. When you faint, you've lost control, right? You, you can't even protect yourself from your fall. Many who faint will have horrible damage done to their face and other parts because they're just falling and they can't even protect themselves from that, which is the other part. When I faint, I can't defend myself. When I faint, I've surrendered everything. And that's what Job says about himself. My heart faints within me. Reminds me of Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. To present your bodies a living sacrifice. When I read these words, I think, where am I holding back? Where are those areas that I'm not surrendering to Jesus Christ? What is the place where I want to keep control or I need to defend myself? Is it with the the friends that I choose? Is it certain lifestyle choices? What is it where I hold back? And I guess I want to invite you to, to look really closely at that in your own life. And at this moment, to be able to say, Lord, I'm going to relinquish that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to allow my heart to faint within me. I'm going to quit holding on. I believe that you rule and you are good. And so I will surrender all to you. I don't know what that will mean. I don't know where that will take me. But I believe that you are good and you are for me. And so I will surrender all of it. I would invite you to do that today. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Your Redeemer lives. And He's shown and proven Himself that you can trust Him. Let me read the Chesterton quote one more time. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is a mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. It is only when hope begins to be, or it is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. Think of our day. We're surrounded by immorality, are we not? It's, it's, it's couched within the terms of amorality, as though there is no moral standards in this world, as though the God who created this world did not leave upon it a moral stamp of His own being. 
it's treated today as though morality is simply a social construct. It's something we come up with in our own minds by which we oppress other people instead of recognizing that it is as much a part of the law of, of nature in this world as, as gravity is, that God has put it in this world at the same power. And yet we live in this, this world of immorality. We live in this world in which anyone who would, who would seek to have moral standards is viewed as an oppressor and a horrible person. We live in a world where there is not just political disagreement, but where there is political animosity. To where being a part of one political party means you hate the others. Not the other party, but the other people. And we have this animosity toward one another in which we're constantly looking at who's destroying whom in the argument. Not about what argument is, is, is finding greater strength, but it, it's become this violence in the way in which we live our world. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at that and I think, is there any possibility that we can go back to civil discourse? Is that even in, in our future, if we, if we lost that forever, for the rest of our lives, I wonder. And is there a place to even hope in the midst of that? I've prayed this morning, and those who are part of Providence have heard me pray for a long time about the violence in our land and how it breaks my heart to see the horrible acts of violence. Not just the mass ones, but any of them as just awful. To see the wars in this world, to hear the discussion and, and the concern, are we seeing the beginning of a third world war? I don't know. It seems hopeless, right? But you know what? He is risen. You can say it. That's not a trite little thing we say on Easter. Friends, this is the bedrock of our faith. When everything else is, is looking horrible, when it seems hopeless, all around us, we can say, He is risen! He is risen indeed! He is indeed. And that is our hope. And because Jesus is alive, we can hope. Because Jesus is alive, we hope, so we look to Jesus and we surrender to Jesus who is alive. Let's pray. Our risen Savior, we lift our eyes to You and we remember when Your beloved child was being stoned and He looked up to heaven and He saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father, standing with all of Your authority. We look to You, Lord Jesus. We praise You that You are alive. And we plead with You that You would keep us from forgetting that. And that we would live as Your surrendered people, constantly looking to You, our resurrected Lord. Will You grant this in Jesus' name? Amen.